then we must conclude that God exists. And if I can prove to you that Jesus indeed was raised from the dead, Jesus lived and he died and he said he would come back to life and he did. If we can give evidence of that, we have just proven there is a God. And we've also established the fact that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Son of God. He's deity. And furthermore, the Word of God must be true. And then that message is going to become the hub of the Bible, the hub of the gospel. We'll talk about that concept here in just a second. But let's go back through those points. If I can show that Jesus was raised from the dead, and it's established as a fact that indeed Jesus was raised from the dead then that establishes everything we stand for found in the scriptures. God exists, Jesus is the Son of God, and the Word is true. And so this is the note I like to start on. When I'm talking to someone who is not a Christian and I'm having a home Bible study, I start on the note, Jesus is one who was raised from the dead. That in Jesus, uh, there was the bodily resurrection from the dead. And what significance is that? Well, that proves there is a God. The Word of God is true. He is the Son of God. And so now we have a foundation on which to build everything else. Now let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about the resurrection in the end of time. There were some at Corinth who apparently were denying that there was a resurrection in the end of time. And Paul goes back and shows that indeed Jesus was raised from the dead, verses 1 to 4. And then he argues from that resurrection and presents it as if that is, as we just mentioned, the hub of the Christianity will, so to speak. Now picture here the will. The hub is the thing which all the spokes revolve around. And every spoke in that will is dependent on that hub. You don't have to destroy each one of the, the, the spokes in order to destroy the wheel. You take the hub out and the wheel collapses, doesn't it? So the same thing is true with reference to Christianity. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 now. He said at verse 13, <clears throat> If there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ is not risen. Okay, what does that mean? If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain and your faith is vain also. Yes, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact he the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And those who are fallen asleep in Christ have perished. You see the point he's making? Everything centers around that hub of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So our faith is dependent on the resurrection. In other words, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, take the hub away, then our faith is futile. Furthermore, he said our preaching is based upon that. That what we're preaching and we're teaching is based on the resurrection. As we said about the last study, if you can prove Jesus was not raised from the dead, I'm ready to go home, let's forget the meeting because nothing else is going to matter. Not only that, but witnessing the, the apostles did. That is, we're not witnesses. They were our witnesses of the resurrected body. And they could witness concerning that. The hope for the dead, our hope, the deity of Christ, the work that Christ does, the remission of sins, everything about Christianity revolves around the resurrection of Christ. If Christ is not raised, then none of those things are true. But if Jesus was raised from the dead, then that establishes all the other points that are on the screen before you. 
So with that in mind, let's talk about why we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Why do we believe that? Well, here's the first thing. We believe Jesus was raised from the dead because the tomb is empty. If I could only make one point about the resurrection and I was limited, you can't say anything else but one point, I would start with the empty tomb and that would be my argument. Because the tomb indeed is empty. Now let's talk about some facts about the tomb being empty. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, if you will, the resurrection scene. And notice in Matthew chapter 28 and in verse 6, the declaration was the tomb was empty. The angel said to those who came, he is not here, for he is risen. As he has said, come see the place where he lay. They were at the tomb. They were invited by the angel to come and look in the tomb. The tomb is now empty. The same thing is seen in Luke chapter 24. Take a moment to turn over to Luke chapter 24, if you will. And in verse 3. Luke 24 and verse 3, then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Indeed, the tomb was empty. That fact was admitted by all, the disciples, the enemies, and all who knew anything about that, they admitted the tomb was empty. But here is the question. How did the tomb become empty? And so there are those who admit that indeed the tomb is empty, but now we've got to explain how it became empty, and there are a number of ways in which men have tried to explain that. Some have tried to explain it by what's been called the swoon theory. Watch the swoon theory. The swoon theory says Jesus really didn't die, but he fainted on the cross, and then he was placed in the tomb assuming he was dead. He revived his strength and pushed his way out, and therefore he claimed then to be raised from the dead. He never did die at all. Now let's stop and think about that. Let's just assume for a fact, for a moment, that he really didn't die. How could Jesus have removed that stone? Mark chapter 16 shows that three women in their good health and full strength came to the tomb and were asking, how shall we remove the stone? Here were three women who felt they in their full strength couldn't remove the stone. Add to that the fact that Jesus in his weakened condition could not move that stone. What's going on with Jesus? Think of the blood that he's lost. They pierced his side and there came out blood and water, the text says, John chapter 19. He hasn't eaten in three days. Those at the cross knew that he was dead. So how could that have happened when three women could not move that stone? His side was pierced. So consequently, the swoon theory doesn't really make any sense. We could say more, but that dismisses that rather quickly. But here's another theory that some have had, and that is that the disciples of Jesus stole the body. In fact, that was the charge. You remember in Matthew chapter 28 and in verse 13, there were those who made the charge the disciples, the soldiers who were guarding the tomb said, the disciples came and did that while we slept. Now you know the point to be made. How do they know that it was the disciples if they were asleep? So there's lying going on somewhere. They said, we were asleep and the disciples stole it. How do you know it was the disciples that stole it, if that was the case? How could they do that without waking the guards? If the disciples had claimed, had, had stole the body, they would not have made the claim that indeed he was raised from the dead because now they have a body to do something with. That theory doesn't make any sense either. Some have theorized that the enemy stole the body that it was the very ones who were, who were against Jesus who went into the tomb and they stole the body and took it out. 
If that was the case, they could have produced the body in Acts chapter 2 and have destroyed Christianity in its very beginning. Now get the picture. That Peter on the day of Pentecost is standing up with the other apostles saying, Jesus has been raised from the dead. And while making that claim, someone could produce the body of Jesus because they stole the body. How they could have destroyed Christianity in the very beginning. They didn't have the body, they couldn't do that. My question is, what motive would the enemies have had for stealing the body? Proof for them would be for the body to be still in the grave. So when Peter is declaring in Acts chapter 2, he's raised from the dead. Let's go over to the tomb, let's look in, there's the body, he's still there. He's not raised from the dead. The only other explanation that has been offered is that he really was raised from the dead. That was the conclusion of the angel in Matthew chapter 28 and in verse 7. That he said he was going to be raised from the dead. Come see the place where he lay. He is raised from the dead. That fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm 16 and in verse 10. We'll say more about that in a moment. So the first argument to be made, why do we believe Jesus was raised from the dead? Let's look at the empty tomb. The tomb is empty. Let's explain how it became empty. He either really didn't die and let's look at all the consequence of that. Or the disciples stole it. Look at the consequence of that. And, or the enemy stole it. Or he really was raised from the dead. By the way, in Acts chapter 2, that was the argument that was being made by Peter. Let's turn to Acts chapter 2 before we go to the next, next point. In Acts chapter 2, as Peter is standing up preaching, he's preaching concerning the resurrection of Christ. That's the heart and the core of the gospel message. Now, beginning at verse 24, he said, Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David said, and there his, his, he gives his quotation from Psalm 16, where the Lord had said that, uh, look at verse 27, You will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. He said, Men and brethren, I'm reading at verse 29, here's his comment on that prophecy. Let me freely speak to you concerning the patriarch David, that he is both dead and is buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. I know David wasn't talking about himself. Peter, how do you know? Because his tomb is with us, and his body's still there. His tomb is not empty. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn in an oath that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. What's he arguing? He's arguing the tomb is empty, but David's tomb is not. So he's arguing from the empty tomb. Powerful argument, that is. Here's a second reason we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, and that is the transformation of the disciples. The great change that took place in the disciples. When Jesus died, and shortly before, the disciples were in utter despair, particularly at his death. Notice in John chapter 14, just before Jesus departed from them, he said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. That suggests to me that he thought they're going to be troubled in their hearts. Shortly after the resurrection, though, they made a sudden change. They were not expecting the resurrection. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24, resurrection scene, and look at verse 11 
when they heard the words of the women who had been at the tomb, verse 11 said, their words seemed to them like idle tales and they did not believe them. In other words, they were not expecting the resurrection. So here are men who are in despair. They are discouraged at the death of Christ. And now, suddenly we're going to see a different kind of people, but they were not expecting the resurrection. So what does that tell me? That tells me that they saw something that convinced them that indeed Jesus was raised from the dead. Let's take Peter as an example of that. Let's go to Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew chapter 26, just prior to his death, here is Peter who is cursing and swearing and saying that he doesn't even know the Lord. Look at Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 69. Then when he was asked, you also are with Jesus of Galilee, he denied it. and said, I do not know what you're saying. And they said, you're with this Jesus of Nazareth, verse 60, uh, uh, 71, verse 72. Then again, he denied it and with an oath saying, I do not know the man. Verse 74, again, he began to curse and to swear saying, I don't know the man, he said. That same Peter was at the tomb, Luke chapter 24, verse 12, and wondered what he was seeing. He went to the tomb and he looked in and he wondered about that. Here was a man cursing and swearing, saying, I don't know the Lord. But within a few days, you see a different man with boldness like you've never seen in Peter before. What do you mean boldness? Look at Acts chapter 4 and in verse 10. Now, we see a man who is denying the Lord, but turn to Acts chapter 4 and verse 10 and see the kind of boldness that he has. Look at verse 10, what he said. Let it be known to you all and all the people of Israel by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this man stands before you whole. He was one time looking in the tomb wondering, and now he's proclaiming the resurrection of Christ. Look at chapter 4, verse 19 and 20. We cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. That's when he's being threatened. Look at chapter 5, verse 29. We ought to obey God rather than men. Now from the time of the discouragement and the time of his denial of the Lord and this great boldness you have, what happened in the meantime? There was the claim of the resurrection. What I'm suggesting to you is nothing but the resurrection could have done that kind of thing to these disciples. That great transformation of the disciples is argument that they were convinced that they had seen evidence that indeed Jesus was raised from the dead. Here's a third consideration. The change in the Jews. Why do we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? Look at the change in the Jews, the very ones who killed him. You see, the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. You remember in Mark 15, verses 13 and 14, when the question was raised by Pilate, what should I do with Jesus? Crucify him, crucify him, they said. They wanted him killed. Let's go to Acts chapter 2 now. On the day of Pentecost, Peter said that you have taken and by your lawless hands you've crucified and put him to death. In other words, some of you that are present here were the very ones that crucified our Lord. The very ones that were crying out, crucify him and crucify him. Now, what did they hear in Acts chapter 2? The very ones that wanted him killed. Look at beginning at verse 24. They heard a sermon about the resurrection of Christ. What Peter began, as we've already noted, is this fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm 16 and 10, where David had said, you'll not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. What does that mean? 
You will not leave my soul in Hades. The spirit goes into the Hadean realm. The body goes to the grave to be corrupted. You will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will the body see corruption, but they'll be joined back together. That's a resurrection. He said, Peter, uh, Peter says that David had prophesied concerning that. He shows that this could not refer to David. We've already pointed that out. Because David's tomb is still with us. David was not talking about himself. Now here's what he concluded from all of that. Look at verse 36. That God has made this same Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. That Jesus has been raised from the dead. Now get the picture. Standing in the audience are those very people who had shouted, crucify him, wanted him dead. They hear a sermon about the resurrection. They hear the conclusion that indeed Jesus is now raised from the dead and now they changed. Look at verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the, uh, the, the, the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? You see, that message cut, their, cut to the chase, it cut to the heart, and furthermore, they want to know what do we have to do to obey the one we wanted to kill? What are we going to do now to be obedient to him? And so, they were told to submit to his authority. Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. The very one you crucified, because he commanded it, you are to be baptized. You repent and be baptized. Now look at verse 41. They that gladly received the word were baptized, and there were added to them about 3,000 souls. What I'm suggesting to you is those 3,000 were convinced of the bodily resurrection of the Lord. Nothing can explain that change of the very ones who said, we want to kill him, and then they're saying over here, we'll do whatever he tells us to do. Except they were convinced that there was a resurrection in the meantime. So why do we believe? that Jesus was raised from the dead because the tomb is empty. Tell me how it became empty. And secondly, the transformation of his own disciples. And then the change in the Jews. Let's add to that witnesses. There were witnesses of that. Witnesses are powerful. Simon Greenleaf, who wrote the testimony of the evangelist, he practiced law in the 1800s from 1806 to 1853, was a professor at Harvard, suggested a number of things that a standard by which I'm, I understand that is used even in our court system still today, of how you put a witness to the test. How do I know this is a credible witness? Not everybody's a credible witness. Who says, I saw or I was there, and you put them to the test and they may not be a credible witness. Now he gave a number of things, but I want to focus on three. He said, first of all, there is their honesty. Are they honest people? And so let's forget Bible things. Let's just talk about if you were called, or someone, not you, but let's suppose someone else was called to be a witness in court. One of the tests is going to be their honesty. What do we mean by that? Well, suppose we could, this guy that's been called in as an expert witness, suppose we can establish he's been convicted of fraud. He was convicted of lying to court, in the court several times before. And we can show that he's dishonest. We've just dismissed him as being a credible witness because he has a reputation for being dishonest. So one, one, the first thing we're going to look at is his honesty. Secondly, he said ability. Not everyone has the ability. Do they have the mental ability? You know, this, this doctor may be a good credible witness because of his ability to analyze. 
But here is someone who has mental issues, for example, may not be a credible witness or may not have the ability to formulate information. So what about their ability? And thirdly, what about their number? You see, two witnesses are stronger than one and three are stronger than two. And if you have 10 witnesses to the same event and they all say the same thing and they're all in agreement, that's pretty strong evidence, isn't it? So let's just suppose that we uh, witness a wreck out here on the highway this afternoon and we're called into court in a few months and, uh, and we all say that the red car was the car that was speeding and ran through the red light. What about our honesty? Well, if it can be shown that we're honest people and show we're credible in our ability to analyze and understand, and furthermore, we all say the same thing, that's a pretty strong evidence that the driver of the red car is going to be in trouble. Let's put that to the test when it comes to the witnesses of the resurrection. The witnesses of the resurrection meet that criteria. Let's talk about their honesty. You see, if we could find where th this witness and that witness and this witness and that witness and nearly every witness had told lies multiple times before, that kind of destroys their, their credibility. What about the honesty of the witnesses of the resurrection? Well, these were men who suffered for the cause. They suffered persecution and, and imprisonment and trial because they were preaching the resurrection. Would they suffer for what they knew to be a lie? You see, they told of their own faults. I don't know about you, but if I were going to lie, the first thing I would want to lie about would be my own faults. I would want to present myself as being better than what I am, wouldn't you? They would tell of their own faults. The biblical writers would talk about Peter's denial. If you're going to lie, I would, I would have taken that and, and lied about that. If you're going to lie. The ambition of the sons of Zebedee, wanting to one sit on the right hand and one on the left, that ambition that was not in harmony with the nature of the kingdom. They're told about that. The failure to understand when they come to the tomb and they looked and they begin to wonder what's going on. They didn't comprehend and understand the resurrection at first. They told about that. The reasons for lying cannot be found in the disciples. For example, people lie because of fear. They testified of the resurrection in the face of the threat of death. So they didn't lie out of fear. We want to tell the people that he was raised from the dead because if we say he wasn't, they may kill us. They were going to kill him because they were preaching the resurrection. One reason for lying is greed. There was nothing to be gained. In fact, there was something to be lost. Ambition is a reason for lying. There was no power to be gained. And so they are credible witnesses because of honesty. What about their ability? What about are they competent witnesses? Well, they had been with Jesus since, his, since the beginning, Acts chapter 1, since his baptism. So they knew Jesus. They would recognize him when he was raised from the dead. Furthermore, Matthew was a tax collector, like an IRS agent. I mean, these are not ignorant men. Luke was a doctor. Peter, Andrew, James, and John were businessmen. Yes, they were fishermen, but they weren't Saturday fishermen. They ran a business of fishing. They were businessmen. John had the ability to note details. Do you remember in John how he talked about the linen cloth folded together in a place by itself? He could pay close attention to details. Paul had a, was a highly educated man, schooled at the feet of Gamaliel, perhaps tantamount to a master's or maybe even a doctorate. 
These were men of ability. Well, what about their number and agreement? Remember our illustration 10, witnesses all say the same thing. That's pretty strong. To borrow some language from Luke chapter 22, though it wasn't talking about the resurrection, you finally reach your point, we need no further witness. We have competent numbers. We have great numbers of witnesses. You see, they all said the same thing. Peter said he was raised from the dead, and so did John say he was raised from the dead, and so did Paul say he was raised from the dead, and a host of others. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 6 said he was seen by over 500 at once. Over 500 witnesses who said the same thing. Now let's go back to Acts chapter 2 for a moment and notice at verse 32, the argument of the witnesses is made by Peter. He said, this Jesus was raised up of which we are all witnesses, he said. Actually, he gives three arguments. Prophecy, the empty tomb, and witnesses prove the resurrection of Christ in Acts chapter 2. We're just trying to give you a summary of why we believe Jesus was raised from the dead. But let's consider his appearances. That is, when Jesus appeared after his resurrection, that, he, that proved that indeed he was raised from the dead. Let's get a sampling of this in John chapter 20. Let's go to John chapter 20. Thomas would not believe until he saw the Lord. Do you remember in John chapter 20, Jesus appeared to his disciples, and Thomas wasn't there, you recall. And the other disciples came to him. I'm reading it, John 20 and 25. And they said to him, uh, and, uh, they said, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, this is Thomas speaking, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe, he said. So what I'm suggesting to you is his appearance to the disciples convinced them he was raised from the dead. They go and tell Thomas. Thomas said, I don't believe it until I see it myself. So eight days later, let's continue reading there. Came again and Thomas was in their midst. And look at verse 27. He said to Thomas, reach your hand here and look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas's conclusion was, my Lord and my God. The appearance convinced him that indeed Jesus was raised from the dead. He saw his hands in his side and his conclusion, this is my Lord and my God. Now that's not the only one who claimed that Jesus appeared to me. I want us to look at <clears throat> a running list of his appearances. And time is not going to permit us to go through each one of these in detail. I just want to get a list of the appearances now. So he appeared to many. What do we mean by appearing to many? He appeared to Mary Magdalene. John 20 and Mark 16. Tell us that. He appeared to two other women. Matthew chapter 28 in verse 9. He appeared to Simon in Luke chapter 24 and 1 Corinthians 15. The two on the road to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24, to the eleven. That was when Thomas wasn't there. To over 500 at one time, 1 Corinthians 15. To James, to all of the apostles, this time including Thomas. That was eight days later, you remember. To Peter and Thomas and Nathaniel and James and John and others in John 21, breakfast by the sea. To the eleven at the Great Commission and giving the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. To the eleven at Jerusalem and to the eleven at the Mount of Olives. And to Paul, who said, last of all, he was seen of me also. Now you think about, you take the 500 and then add all the rest. Here's all the appearances of Christ. The appearances of Christ gave evidence that indeed he was, he was raised from the dead. And that's what all of these men and women claimed, that indeed he was raised from the dead. But let's look at one more. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus 
gives us evidence that indeed Jesus was raised from the dead. So what does the conversion of Saul have to do with this? Well, I want to tell you about a couple of guys that were atheists. And the argument that was presented by one of them, whose name was Lord George Lyttelton, this is in the 1700s, 1747. He had a friend named Gilbert West. And Lord George Lyttelton and Gilbert West set out to disprove Christianity. And they decided the way to do that was, uh, if they could disprove the resurrection of Christ, they could disprove Christianity, and they're right about that. If they could show Jesus was not raised from the dead, they've destroyed Christianity. If they could give strong evidence that indeed he was not raised from the dead. So Gilbert West said, I'll take the resurrection of Christ, and we're, I'm going to show that that never happened. But Lyttelton thought he needed to deal with the conversion of Saul and prove that the Lord never appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus. Now that must have been significant because his conclusion was that if the Lord did appear to Saul like he claimed, that proves that he was raised from the dead. So I'm going to prove that he, that didn't happen, which in turn shows he, didn't, he was not raised from the dead. Well, in turn, both of these men studied themselves out of that and became believers. They set out to disprove the resurrection. They made a great change. Here's what Lyttelton said. He said the conversion was of itself a demonstration sufficient to prove Christianity to be a divine revelation. Here was a man who didn't believe in the resurrection, studied the conversion of Saul to disprove the resurrection, and came a believer in the resurrection of Christ. Now, how did he go about doing that? Well, he set out four propositions. He said, let's analyze what the claim was. He knew what the Bible said, that Saul claimed that the Lord appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And the question is not whether he was saved. That's another issue. Was he saved on the road? or no, it's not. Did the Lord appear to him at all? Did that really happen? And so he said, well, here's one possibility. Paul could be an imposter. That's possible. In other words, he knows the Lord did not appear to him, and he's lying about the whole thing. A second possibility is that Paul was an enthusiast with a wild imagination. And so he really thought the Lord did appear to him, and he's just... He's got an overheated imagination, and he just dreamed this all up, and so he really thinks it happened, but it didn't. A fourth, a third possibility was he was deceived by others. Someone made him think the Lord had appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And then he said, you know, there's a fourth possibility. It really did happen, that what he said happened really did happen. And as he sat back and analyzed, he said, that's all the possibilities I can think of, either He's lying, he knows he's lying, he was deceived by others, or he just imagined it and he thinks it's true, or really it did happen, one of those four. I can't think of another possibility. So he began to explore. He said Paul was not an imposter, he finally concluded. And why did he conclude that? Well, there was no motive for lying. People have motives for telling lies. For example, money is one. He said, look on the side of testifying that Jesus was raised from the dead. There was no money to be gained by that. In fact, if anything, it was to be lost. Reputation. He was giving up a great reputation among the Jews to preach the resurrection of Christ. Power was not a motive. Notice he placed his story on the road to Damascus. In other words, it was not off in some obscure place where 
where no one would ever hear or know about what was going on, and he could tell kind of a fairy tale once upon a time in a long, faraway land, this happened. He placed it on the road to Damascus. The miracles that he worked in Acts chapters 13 and 14 and 16 shows that he was not a fraud. And so consequently, he said, I, I don't think Paul was an imposter at all. Number two, he said, I don't think Paul was an enthusiast the more I study on that. See, an enthusiast usually sees what he's looking for, and he was not looking for anything like the resurrection of Christ. He was on the road to Damascus to put some in prison, some Christians in prison who believed in the resurrection. He was not expecting to see the resurrected Lord. And by the way, Acts 22, 26 shows there were other witnesses there. Paul was not out on the road by himself, and he said, the Lord appeared to me, and no one else was there to see it, but I saw the Lord, I know I did. There were other witnesses. He had no marks of an enthusiast. An enthusiast often has a temper with a, these wild and unreasonable. Perhaps he's ignorant. But no, he said, Paul's not ignorant. He is schooled at the feet of Gamaliel. Much learning, the charge was made, had made him mad. Often they have misguided zeal. No evidence of that. He had no marks of an enthusiast. And so Lyttelton said, he's not an imposter, he's not an enthusiast. So maybe there is the possibility he was deceived by someone else. He said, you know what? It's impossible to produce a light greater than the noonday sun. He could, they could not have called voices to be heard, nor could they have caused Paul to be blind for three days and then cause his sight to return to him. And so his conclusion was, the only thing I can conclude, because he was not an imposter, he's not an enthusiast, and, and he's not uh, deceived by others, is that indeed what he said happened really did happen, and the Lord did appear to him, and Lyttelton said, now I believe in the resurrection of Christ. The conversion of Saul is strong evidence that indeed Jesus was raised from the dead. Why do we believe Jesus was raised from the dead? We believe Jesus was raised from the dead for the following reasons. Because the tomb is empty. How did it become empty? And because of the transformation in the disciples, because of the change in the Jews, because of the witnesses who said, we saw him after he was raised from the dead, because of his multiple appearances, over 500 saw him. And because of the conversion of Saul, who said, I saw the Lord on the road to Damascus. I saw him. And indeed, Jesus was raised from the dead. If that's true, then everything else we're going to talk about is important. And what we talked about at the last hour, it makes a difference what we believe. If that's true, then everything else we're going to talk about tonight and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday is important. If these principles are not true, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters at all. There may be one or more present this morning who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins? Would you acknowledge your faith? Be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins. If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?